At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. We've not had the opportunity to meet. My name is Kirk McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And this morning, it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, church family, I have some amazing news for us this morning. God is at work in human history. God is at work in human history. At this very moment, the God of the universe is managing the cosmic universe. God is keeping the stars and the planets and the black holes exactly where he wants them to be. And through some unknown process to us, he has created and is creating conditions for life on this very planet. And throughout the millennia of human history, that life that God has then developed here on this very planet, God has raised up peoples, God has raised up nations, God has raised up government structures, and he has torn them down. Every rising of the sun, every setting of the sun, every drop of rain, every ray of sunshine, every gust of wind has been God working his global plan in all of human history. And it's not just on a global scale, God having a a global plan for all peoples everywhere. It is also on a local scale, meaning this, that God preordained when and where you would be born, what parents you would have, at what time you would live. God has preordained good works for you to do. He is not only at work in all of human history everywhere, but he is at work in the very lives of you and your friends and your neighbors. God is at work in human history. And so if God is at work in human history, that listen, we can stop there. Amen? We, with that truth right there, we can stop and be done for the day. But, but let's just add one more layer onto that. If God is at work in human history and he is, what is it that he's doing? What's he doing? We're agreeing here this morning that God is at work in human history. What is he doing? Well, to boil the whole thing down, here it is, church family, he is coming after sinners. That's what he's doing in all of human history as as he orchestrates the cosmos and rises up nations and tears them down and orchestrates over uh, over all natural uh, phenomena on the planet. As, As he's doing all of that, all of that working, everything that God is doing is pointing towards one central task, that is to bring sinners to himself. To, to go after sinners, to, to reach sinners. That, that's what he's doing. So if we were to summarize the plan of the all-powerful ruler of the universe, which has played itself out for thousands of years, it can plainly be stated like this, God is seeking sinners. God is seeking sinners. God, that is the ruler of the universe. That is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is Yahweh God. That is the one true God. That is the, God is seeking, meaning he is putting things, specific things in place in your life. Certainly in, certainly in the nation, certainly in the nations, he is putting things in place. But he is putting specific things in place in your life so that you would be drawn to him. 
He's seeking after you so that you would be drawn into him. That, that is the cosmic plan of the God of the universe. He is, he is seeking, he is drawing, he is calling, he is wooing, he is chasing down, he is relentlessly pursuing. And who is it that he's relentlessly pursuing? Well, sinners. <laughs> sinners, Me meaning in God's economy of the universe, he has set up a particular way in which we should live and we all have said, no thanks. <laughs> God has set up a particular life, a, a particular way in which we humans can find and experience our optimal flourishing, and instead we have chosen a lesser, less glorious path. In the kingdom of God, we are rebels. We have rebelled against the king. We have lied on the king. We, we have ignored the king. And yet it is this king, this, this God, who is searching after us. So the arc of all human history can be boiled down to this. God is seeking sinners. And listen to me. Every single one of us came in here with, with the most complex and crazy lives ever. Amen? Y'all got some stuff going on. I got stuff going on. And in the midst of all this chaos about what's happening in our world and what's happening around us and what's even happening in our own personal lives and deep down in the depths of our soul, what we need is a moment of clarity and a moment of sober reality as we look into what's really going on. And what is really going on? What's really going on is that the God of the universe is at work and what he's doing is seeking sinners. And yes, it's that simple. It's, it's absolutely that simple. So for what reason then? God is at work in human history. What is it that he's doing? He's seeking sinners for what reason? Is it for the reason of our destruction? Wouldn't he be right to do so? If it is his universe and he has said, this is the way in which I want you to live and we have said, forget you, I don't care anything about that, I'm gonna go my own way and do my own thing. Wouldn't he be right to then say, well, then you're not allowed to live in my universe? Wouldn't he be right to do so? But church family, that is not the heart of our God. He is at work in human history. The work that he's doing in human history is seeking sinners. And the reason for what reason is so that we might repent. That's why he's seeking sinners. He's seeking sinners so that we might repent. And so repentance can be defined in this way, an absolute surrender to the purposes of God. Repentance then being a turning away from sin and turning towards God. This is why he is seeking after us. And so what's he doing? Coming after sinners. For what reason? For our repentance. And what is the result? Heaven rejoices. That's the result when a sinner turns from their sin and towards God. When, when a sinner surrenders all that he has to the purposes of God, then heaven rejoices. Meaning this, there is a party in heaven. In heaven, what happens is there's music, there's dancing, there's good food, there's good drink. There is unstoppable, overflowing celebration when you repent. Ch church, have you ever been celebrated? You, I mean, you personally. I mean, more, more than just they sang to you on your birthday. I mean, somebody, somebody went out of their way to celebrate you in such a way that it made you feel seen and known and heard and loved. Does that ever happen to you? Well, Christian, can I talk to you this morning? If you have, 
If you have turned your heart away from sin and towards God, he has rejoiced over you. A party in heaven ensued when you said, God, I am done with this way of life and I'm turning myself over to you. There was a party over you, over you, over you. Is is God in love with his church, his corporate church family? Absolutely. And who is his corporate church family made up of? Well, it's made up of individual believers in whom he has rejoiced over. You have been celebrated. You have been rejoiced over because he is deeply in love with you. And as we continue on in that repentance, he continues to celebrate over us. Here it is. Here's the whole sermon. Y'all ready? God rejoices when sinners repent. He, He rejoices. He rejoices over you. When you take that initial step of faith and become a Christian, when you turn away from sin and turn towards God for the first time, there's a party in heaven over you. And then in our day-to-day lives, as we seek to follow Christ and become more like him, and as we kill sin and turn away from it and say, I don't want that. I want to be more like Christ. I, I, I repent of what I've done, and I want to draw closer, nearer to you. There is more celebrating, more rejoicing. Don't you see what, what's com- the, what is flowing out of heaven is not shame and guilt being poured upon you. What's pouring out of heaven is not the disappointed heart of a father wishing you would just be a little better. What's pouring out of heaven, the heart of God to you is not wishing and waiting that you would just finally get it together. That's not the heart of heaven at all. What is flowing and pouring out of the heart of God, the heart of heaven onto his people is a sense of joy and rejoicing when we repent of sin. And so listen to me, church family. God is not waiting on you to get it together. Amen? Isn't that good news this morning? God is not waiting on you to get it together. He's not concerned about how many of the big problems in your life you have solved. God's joy in you does not come from a future version of yourself that is more polished. Help me today. God is not waiting on you to measure up to the super Christians around you. His joy comes when we collapse into his arms in a heart of broken repentance. That is the heart. That is the heart of God. And so, are you a sinner? (laughs) Are you a sinner? Have you repented at any point in your life? Well, then guess what? The heart of God rejoices over you. That's why there's hope in this text this morning. That's why there's, there's hope here resounding from this text this morning is that God is for you. God is for you. God has come after you. He has sought after you. He is chasing you down. And listen, his pursuit of you is so that repentance would be awakened in you. Oh, so somebody, like three or four amens on that with somebody. God's pursuit of you is so that repentance would be awakened in you. That's why he is pursuing, so that then there would be joy in him over you. Do you see how that works? Are y'all making that connection? God's pursuit of you, God's pursuing you in in your day-to-day life. He is coming after you in a multitude of different ways. This sermon right here, right now, being one of them, amen? God is coming at, so his pursuit of you is designed to awaken repentance in you. A turning away from sin and turning towards him. 
And then when that repentance is awakened in you, then he rejoices. When he rejoices, he pursues you more. When he pursues you more, it awakens more repentance. And he rejoices more, and it keeps on going, amen. (laughs) Y'all aren't as excited about this as I am. Okay, okay. We need to get to the text. Let me just give us a framework of how we can work through this text today. I have three points. Don't be shocked. I have three points. Here it is. The first one goes like this. A Savior receiving sinners. We're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. A Savior receives, he receives these sinners. And as a matter of fact, verses 1 and 2 set up the whole rest of the chapter. We're going to see three parables in chapter 15, and verses 1 and 2 are the capstone over these three parables. This this section of text has been called the heart of the gospel of Luke. These three parables, they're so familiar to us. These are are very, very famous parables, and verses 1 and 2 essentially set the tone for the whole thing. So a Savior receiving sinners. Secondly, a sheep known for their wisdom, right? Right? and their willingness to obey. and A sheep <clears throat> found and rejoiced over. We're going to see that in verses 3 through 7. Then thirdly, my last point is going to be this. A coin. A coin found and, re- and rejoiced over. So a sheep found and rejoiced over. A coin found and rejo- rejoiced over. But first we have to see <clears throat> a Savior receiving Sinners, again, like I've said, we, we, know, we know these two parables. Y'all know them. Y'all, come on. And the danger then becomes that we would run past them and miss the depth and the riches of God's love and his joy over you, which he is desperately wanting to pour out upon you this morning. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Okay, can we get into the text today? Help me today. Verse 1. Now, the tax collectors, we'll stop there. These tax collectors, we know, we know these are Jewish men who have decided to work with the Roman occupying government, the hated Roman occupying government, to collect taxes for the Roman government from their countrymen. And in order to make money on the side, they, they actually extort more money from their countrymen than, than they're actually supposed to be taking. These guys are hated. Not only that, now the tax collectors and sinners. That's the two groups of people that we see there. These tax collectors, sinner, just this broad term, this umbrella. They're just sinners, you know? I mean, the tax collectors, obviously sinners, but then there's all these other sinners, right? This, this umbrella term, which, which obviously includes prostitutes, alcoholics, violent men, thieves, this This is that category of people that are clearly on the outside of the religious elite. They're clearly, they have accepted their lot in life to live against God's law. Like, of course, we ignore God. We don't go to the temple. We don't do all that religious stuff. We're sinners. That's that group of people. Now, tax collectors and sinners, watch this, we're all drawing near to do what? hear him, to, to hear him. Who, who was with us last week? We, we heard the sermon on, on Luke 14. Again, y'all, y'all know we preach through books of the Bible. Don't, don't let the chapter divisions throw you off. Chapter divisions came in way later. 
let your eyes back up to the last verse of chapter 14. The last verse of chapter 14. It is not of use of the soil for or manure to throw it in the pile. It is thrown away. The last thing Jesus said in chapter 14. He who has, what? Ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 15, or verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collection centers were all drawing near to hear him. Here are these non-religious sinners, tax collectors, the lowest of the low in the religious society, and they're coming to hear him. Now, now we see this. This is not the first time we see Jesus doing this. A, a religious Jewish man, he's supposed to be holy. He's not supposed to be associating with these type people, but this is not the first time that we've seen that. Think about Luke chapter 5. We saw that back when we were in chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, look at this. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is Jesus' MO. This is what he does. Now, again, Jesus is not saying there that there is a particular class of people who are well and righteous in the sight of God and they do not need any help. Therefore, he has not come for them. Jesus knows that everyone needs to repent. He is after those who are willing to acknowledge that they are sinners. The tax collectors and the sinners at the table with Jesus are not under any illusions about who or what they are. <laughs> they know they're sinners. They know they, these tax collectors know that everybody hates them. It's, it's not any news to them. Now, look at verse 2. Oh boy, here they are. You guys have been waiting for them to show up. Here they are again. Tax collectors, sinners, third group now, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes, again, the, the religious elite, the ones who uh, have created rules about the rules, the scribes then, the guys who sit around all the they study the Bible. They, they copy it down. They, what do they do? Just think about So they grumble, grumbling. It makes us think about, so if, if the scribes and the Pharisees then are this New Testament representation of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, where do we make this connection with the word grumbling? Well, when they, when they leave Egypt and they're in the wilderness and the nation of Israel is grumbling, wouldn't it be better if we were back in Egypt in slavery, and they're grumbling. Well, now here the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling. We, we make that connection. Now, why in the world would they do that? Well, it's because they refuse to follow their man-made rules about holiness. Jesus will not follow these man-made rules which they have set forth, which state that when tax collectors and sinners are there, you ignore them. You push them aside because their unholiness can make you unholy. Their dirtiness can defile you. That's how they reason and that's how they logic. But they miss the power and the majesty of Jesus because Jesus can draw near to people who are unholy and defiled. Yet Jesus is not made unholy or defiled himself. Rather, when he draws near, he makes them clean. He, he turns their unholiness into holiness. He redeems what is broken and lost there. But of course, they can't, they can't see that at all. So, so they, they grumble. Their desire is to create this us versus them mentality, but Jesus will not. I wonder about you this morning, church family. I, I, I do intend to step on your toes. I almost said I don't, but I do. Here it is. What person, what person or type of people do you grumble about when you see them at the Lord's table? What type of, what type of person is an us and them to you? 
Do you grumble when you see the Republicans at the table of Jesus? Lord. Oh, no, here, the, the, those who voted Democrat. I mean, how, how dare they sit at the table of the Lord? The, those people who send their kids to public school. I mean, what are, what are they even thinking? What are they doing at the Lord? The, those kids who private school. Those, kid, those, those moms that don't parent like I parent. Help me today. The, those dads, those, those men who can't, they can't even hold down a job. What are, what are they doing at the table of the Lord? Who, who do we love to grumble about when we see them sitting at the table of the Lord? We need to beware, beware, church family. What is their charge then? Let's continue on in verse two. Their, their charge then, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, what do they say? This man, not only does he receive them, just here, he receives sinners. Not only does he receive them, he takes it a step further and he, what, what does he do? He eats with them. He receives them in the sense that he doesn't just allow them to be there. Okay, tax collectors, listen up. Uh, no one likes you. Make it clear. I don't like you either, but you can sit at the table. That's it. Right? Uh, you sinners, you have obviously disobeyed God and broken his law. I don't like it. God doesn't like it. He doesn't like you very much, but you can sit at the table. Well, that's not his heart at all. That's not what he's doing. He's, re he's receiving them in a way that they are welcome to be there with him. And then he takes it a step further, okay? It's, it's, it's a picture of the family, right? Mom, dad, children, maybe grandma, granddad. The family sitting around the table. And what does the family do? Well, the family shares a meal together. And what Jesus is doing by having this meal with these tax collectors and sinners is he is extending a familial relationship to them. Are y'all not shocked by that? He, he, he's, he's saying so much by, by virtue of just having them sit there at his table. He is saying, you are my people, a symbol of unity and care as he sits and eats with them. Church, I'm mean, you glad that he receives and eats with sinners. Aren't you glad that that's the type of God we serve that receives and eats with sinners? Because how in the world else would we get to the table? If he does not receive and eat with sinners, we can't go to the table. We're, we're not allowed unless he would receive us and eat with us and welcome us. Now, let me make this disclaimer clear. Let me speak to our, our surrounding culture today just for a sake of clarity. We could make the mistake of thinking that Jesus teaches that we should accept people where they are and affirm where they are. This is what our culture wants us to do. If you accept someone then by virtue of accepting them, you must affirm them. Same thing. Those two words mean the same thing. But church family, those two words don't have to mean the same thing. You can accept someone, love them, welcome them, care for them without, without affirming where they are. So make no mistake. Listen to me very clearly, church family. Jesus welcomes porn addicts. Jesus welcomes drug addicts. Jesus welcomes people who abandon their children, compulsive gamblers, the unfaithful spouse, those who struggle with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. Jesus welcomes the thief who wears a ski mask and the one who wears a business suit. And he calls everyone, everyone to repent, the religious and the irreligious. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Jesus does not affirm all lifestyle choices, but he welcomes everyone to his table so that they might repent. This is why Jesus is the most 
inclusive God of all, everywhere, of all time. Jesus says, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you did in your past. I don't care what sickness is going on in your heart. I don't care what sin you struggle with. You can come to Christ. He's, he's totally open. And then he says, and I'm the only way of true salvation. He's, he's totally inclusive and he's to totally exclusive is holy and we are sinners yet he receives us at his table okay so in light of this grumbling he gives them two two parables the first one then is about a lost sheep so so second point in our outline a sheep found and rejoiced over verse three so he told them a parable it starts like this what man of you <clears throat> having a hundred sheep stop there Th think about <laughs> Think about who Jesus just made the hero of this parable. <laughs> the hero of the parable is a shepherd. Now, we might think, oh, King David, right? The very famous Old Testament King David, he was a shepherd. And... Yeah, but the whole point of him being a shepherd is because shepherds were nothing, and he rose up and became a king, right? Shepherds are looked down upon in this society. He makes him the hero of the story. So who is the shepherd then in this story? Well, Jesus, this shepherd then having sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, here we are. <laughs> we are the sheep. And, and you might think, well, you know, sheep are cute. They're, they're fluffy and adorable. Who wouldn't want to be compared to a sheep? But the reason that we're being compared to the sheep, as you, as you know, we're compared to this repeatedly in the Bible, it is because of their clear lack of intellect and their hard-headed nature is why we are compared to them. So, here is the shepherd with the sheep. And if, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one is lost, watch this, until he finds it. At least he doesn't, which one of you who loses a sheep doesn't go after it and search at least for a couple of hours? <laughs> who, who among you having 99 sheep, you lose one, doesn't go and search until dark. Who of you, having lost a sheep, doesn't go and search for that sheep, watch this, until he finds it? Meaning he doesn't give up. Meaning his pursuit is relentless. Meaning there is no wall that he will not tear down. Meaning there is no darkness he will not light up. No, no mountain he won't climb up coming after you. This is the type of God that we serve. The, the pursuit, this relentless pursuit is until he finds it. He's not stopping till he gets it. So, so the point of the numbers, okay, so commentators go back and forth. Why the 99? What, what's going on? Is there some type of symbolism or representation? Is this representing a rich uh, shepherd, a 99? It seems like a lot of sheep. Or is this a poor shepherd? He doesn't really have a lot. 99, maybe, maybe it's not too much. What's going on with these numbers? The point of the numbers then is that 99 is significantly greater than one. That's the point. The point of the 99 verse the one is that 99 is a lot and one is not. So conventional wisdom might say, we did a good job. I mean, if you, at the end of the day, you worked all day and here you got the corral set up and here they go, one, two, three, 55, eight, so, so on and so forth, 98, 99. Oh, hey boys, 1% lost today. You know, I mean, that, that's not that bad. I mean, consider difficult terrain, predation, theft, dehydration, lack of forage, disease, on and on we could go. We only lost one. 
let's rejoice over the 99. Isn't, isn't this what a reasonable shepherd would say? He wouldn't leave his flock unprotected because he might lose even more. So he throws up his hands and says, oh, well, and leaves it. And he's happy with the 99. But Jesus has radical resolve. He's not satisfied with leaving that one sheep. He put himself, don't, don't you see what's happening with this shepherd? This shepherd is literally putting himself in danger to go after the one. He, he at risk to himself. The, the sheep has added nothing to the efforts of this shepherd. The, the sheep has not shot a flare into the sky. The, the sheep doesn't even know that it's lost until the shepherd comes after. Don't, don't you see what's happening first in this, in this parable? Listen to the words of Christ from Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Meaning this, this morning, if you would put your faith, I mean the work of Jesus Christ. What do I mean finished work? I mean what he has accomplished on the cross. I mean his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. If you would put your faith in that, he says you would be saved. He, he, he is after you. Believe what happens next. Verse 5, saved just like this lost sheep. You're not going to believe what happens next. Verse 5, verse 5 is speaking directly to our heart this morning. Verse 5 is revealing what type of shepherd is coming after us. And when he found it, look how tender Jesus is with us. He lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. Some of y'all know uh, I'm an animal person. Any animal people in the room? Animal people, okay. Grew up with animals, always had them. Uh, we, we, right now we have horses, dogs, goats, sheep. I mean, the list goes on and on. Over the years, we've lost some. <laughs> Anybody had a dog run off? Dog, on, man. on dog, now run off on me. Lost a dog. We, we've had horses like we're... <laughs> We're looking all through the pasture, can't find the horse, don't know where. We've had uh, goats with their heads stuck in the pen way back in the back property. Can I tell you, out of all the times I have found a lost animal, not once, not once have I ever rejoiced. Now, have I cussed that animal? Absolutely. I had to repent later. I was not happy to, you like, what, what are you doing? Stay in the fence. The fence is safety. The fence is protect. Why are you outside of the fence where you're not supposed to be? But look at the, the contrast between the heart of this shepherd who is joyful when he finds his sheep. He rejoices over, over finding the sheep. So, so listen to me. He is not fueled by anger. When he finds you and you repent, he is not fueled by anger saying, how dare you run off? That is not his heart at all. In addition, this shepherd is not frowning in disappointment. Do you feel that way this morning that God is looking at you frowning in disappointment? He is not frowning in disappointment saying, I thought you knew better. Well, that's not the heart of this shepherd at all. Or, or this shepherd is not loading onto us shame upon shame saying, you know, the 99 made it back. Why can't you be more like them? Well, that, that's not the heart of this shepherd at all. Beloved, listen to me, listen to me. You 
have been lifted onto the shoulders of your Savior, and you have been carried to a place of safety and healing. You see, the reason that the sheep had to be carried is most likely because he was wounded. You see, either he was wounded and couldn't actually walk himself, or he was just too plain stubborn to follow. Eads him up. Either way, the shepherd lifts him up and takes him to a place of safety and healing. Praise this God. But that's not all. Look at verse 6. And when when he comes home, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found this sheep that was lost. (laughs) The Pharisees thought that God's rejoicing was over the destruction of sinners. That's when God rejoices. That's when God's happy. When there's fire from heaven upon the ungodly. When there's lightning bolts and hailfire and brimstone and God burns up his enemies. And that's when we have the party. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. The heart of God rejoices not at the destruction of sinners, but at the redemption of sinners. That's when God rejoices. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the heart of this whole text. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Joy in heaven also meaning joy in God, the heart of God. That's what that means. There'll be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I said at the beginning, I'll say it again. God rejoices. God rejoices when sinners repent. That's the whole main point. God rejoices when sinners repent. The love of God provides an opportunity for repentance. If we have eyes to see this kind of love, this kind of seeking, pursuing, if we understand it, then it draws us to repentance. And when we repent, heaven will rejoice. Listen to the way the the commentator James R. Edwards says it. He has an amazing commentary on the book of Luke. Here's what he says. Repentance is not the cause of God's love. Oh, help me today. Repentance is not the cause of God's love, but the result of God's love. That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in all of all the other religions. This one says God's love. Again, it's not, okay, God says, I'm ready. I think I might be prepared to love you. I mean, I'm, I'm this close. You know, I've, I've looked over your life. You've tried really hard. And you're better than most people around you. So I'm this close to loving you. All you need to do is say you're sorry. And if you say you're sorry, I'll I'll go the rest of the way and I'll love you. But isn't that how we treat him? Isn't that how we treat him? But that's not his love at all. His, His love comes pouring over us like an overwhelming flood. His, his love comes out of heaven like a volcano just, just raining down on us with his love and the result of our heart says, I have to follow him. Do you see how different those two things are? It's so important to understand. Look, okay, verse seven, just so I tell you, there'll be no more joy. <clears throat> uh, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now remember, this is a parable, so we cannot stretch it too far. Jesus is not saying that there are people who do not need to repent. Remember, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. People who think they don't need to repent. After all, we're going to see that highlighted in the third parable, which we will not get to today. 
but we'll see that highlighted that the religious people don't think they need to repent like the older brother in the parable that we're going to see the parable of the two lost sons. They don't think they need to repent, but they do. <laughs> so God rejoices when sinners repent. So if it is true that God rejoices when sinners repent, then on the other side of that coin is also true that God laments when we present ourselves as having it all together. Meaning he rejoices over church repentance, but laments over self-righteousness. Church family, how are we ever going to reach a lost and dying skeptical world if we don't just right out admit that we are lost sheep in need of a savior? I feel like the evangelical world, the church world, is, is trying to modify its message to say, all you need to do is add a little Jesus to help better your life. Just add a little Jesus. Keep whatever path and trajectory you're on, that's probably good. And so all you need to do is just add a little Jesus. Jesus can help you achieve your goals. And what a distorted, ridiculous message that, listen, for the most part, look at how it's, has it worked? It's been an epic failure as people continue to walk away and to leave the church and say that there's nothing within those walls that interests me. There's that message of add a little bit of Jesus to my goals and my way in my life. I tried it and it doesn't do anything. The real message is total and complete repentance and surrender to him. It's not at least this message a little bit. He's asking for all of it. And so we cannot modify this message of just add a little Jesus. What we have to do to our skeptical culture is say you're lost and dying. And guess what? So are we. We're not perfect. We don't have it together. It's not as if we figured this whole thing out. And if you just be like us, join our special club, then your life would be great like ours is. Well, of course not. The real message is we are lost. We're dying. We're broken. We have no idea what we're doing and no idea where to go. Only Jesus has come in and given us direction and peace and purpose and hope. And it's to him to which we look and we give all of our life and meaning comes from him. Right? Amen? Somebody help me today. Okay, thirdly. Not a sheep this time, but, but a coin. A coin found and rejoiced over. Look at verse 8. <laughs> or what woman, who was, who was the hero of the first parable? Shepherd. Who's the hero of this parable? The woman. Second class citizen in that society looked down upon. The rabbis, <clears throat> the rabbis used to pray, thank you God that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. That's where they were in the society. But watch what Je Jesus, Je Jesus elevates her to the hero position of this parable. <laughs> now, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, uh, if, you, if you're reading out of your ESV, you could jump down and see that footnote. One silver coin was a, was a day's labor. So, so the silver coin, I mean, it's not, it's not worth a penny. It's not worthless, but it's also not 50 Gs, okay? It's not 10 grand. Uh, I mean, if you make 10 grand a day, uh, I'd like to talk to you about our building program. Um, <laughs> but so, so, it's, so the, coin, the, the coin is not nothing, um, but, but the coin isn't also a million dollars. Having 10 silver coins... If she loses a coin, 
<laughs> I laughed at myself this week. Um, I also thought it was funny that Jesus makes this woman the one uh, who is seeking, uh, finding this thing that is lost in the house uh, because every man in the room knows women are way better at finding things in the house. It's science. I don't know. Um, you know, I stand in front of the cupboard for four hours. You know, I've made a schematic scale. I cannot find the extra bottle of ketchup. I've removed everything from the pantry. I put everything back in the pantry. Cannot find the ketchup. I've stared. I've been saying my beard is getting longer. I'm staring. Where is the extra ketchup? My wife walks up. It's right here. How did, how did she do that? This is amazing. Okay, anyway, that that's, has nothing to do with the sermon. Now, if she loses one coin, watch this. What does she do? She does not, she, she will light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Just like we saw with the shepherd. So just like the shepherd, this woman was not going to stop until she found what she's looking for. She's seeking diligently. She's seeking diligently. There, there is a determination here. She does not say, I'll, I can, I'll find it later. You know, I, I looked for a bit. I'll find the coin. Hey, you know what? It'll turn up. Just, it'll turn up. Don't, don't worry about it. No, she seeks diligently. There's great determination. In addition, just like the sheep, the coin did nothing to be found. The sheep did nothing to be found. The coin does not shoot up a flare. The coin does not holler out, hey, I'm under the couch. The coin uh, does not make itself super shiny so that she might see the glint of the coin. The coin does nothing. The coin just sits there and the coin is the one that is pursued just like the sheep. And so just as God is diligent in, in finding us in his unstoppable pursuit of us, though we are not looking for him, he has come and found us. Verse 9. Let's look at verse 9 together. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. <laughs> has anybody in the room ever been to a coin party? <laughs> Your friend calls you up or sends you a text. You, we are going to party tonight. You're like, amazing. What's the occasion? I found a coin. It's a very strange party. I'll be there at eight. I don't know. Like, what do you bring to a coin party? I'm not even sure. What's the protocol there? I, I don't know. They, 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 they didn't tell me. But, but to this woman, the, the truth, the reality is finding this coin cost this woman something. Finding this coin, what does she do? The first thing she does was she lights what? A lamp. In those days, which burns, which costs, after she finds it, then she throws a party at her expense, inviting her friends and her neighbors over. You know she's going to feed them. She got to. It's not a hospital if you don't. So now she's, she's burnt this oil. She's got this food. She's throwing this party. She's like out money for finding the money. What type of logic is going on here? <laughs> right? The, the whole point is her deep love for this coin is the picture of the Father's deep love for us that at great cost to Himself, the Father has come after us. The cost to Himself was the sacrifice of His Son, don't you see? That, that's what this picture is painting for us, it, it, is that the Father coming after us. Verse 10, so ver, listen, verse 7 and verse 10 are the heart of these, these two sections. Just so I tell you, verse 10, there's joy before the angels of God or joy in the heart of God or joy in heaven 
right? That's what that means. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'll say it again. He is glad. Is he a whole sinner's repent? God rejoices. He rejoices. He is glad. Is he a holy God? Yes, he is. So how then can he rejoice when sinners repent? Is it that God is just saying, okay, you've come to me, you've said you're sorry, and we're not going to do anything with your offense. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to just look past it. I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. Let's just get to the party. Is that the heart of God? Well, certainly not at all. So then the question becomes, for any astute Bible student understanding the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the question then becomes, how can God rejoice when a sinner repents? Why does the repenting of a sinner make the heart of God rejoice? How can, if he is holy, how can he then be happy? Well, here it is. Jot this down. This is, this is the deepest uh, part of this sermon that I need you guys to get. Here it is. God, this is Trinitarian. Watch it. God the Father rejoices when the works of the Son are applied to sinners through the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> God is holy and, and cannot rejoice over sinners. He can't do it because He is holy. Unless, unless, unless His Son, who was perfect, dies on the cross in our place for our sins, and then his account is accredited to our account, and the Father then is fired up to do that. I, the Father says, I want my Son's blood to cover you, because if my Son's blood covers you, then you belong to me, and you become a part of my family, and I adopt yet one more, and I'm a happy dad that loves to adopt children. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of the Father, and it's all applied then by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, y'all, that's the sermon done. I, I have to apply this and get out of y'all's hair, okay? What are we to do with this then? I, I think the application couldn't be more clear for us this morning. Here it is. From his own initiative, and at great cost to himself, he has pursued you. And if that is the case, he is pursuing you, so repent. Church family, don't, don't you see? His, his pursuing is so that repentance would be awakened in the heart of the believer. That's why he is pursuing you. To the, to the sinners and tax collectors and also to the scribes and Pharisees, he says repent. It's both groups. Scribes and Pharisees, sinners and tax collectors. He tells both groups to repent. In the same way to the alcoholics and to the drug addicts, he says, repent. In the same way to the front row Baptists and to the Sunday school teachers, he says, repent. Amen? To, to, the, to the thieves uh, out there, again, that wear ski masks or business suits, he says, repent. And to the one who says, I read King James only and I go to a whatever strict Baptist church, he says, repent. This is the message of God. And when we do repent, God rejoices when we repent. And so I said it before, I, I, I want to remind you of this. God is not waiting on you to get it together. Take a deep breath this morning, take a deep breath and let out all of the masks and the pretension and the joking and the phoniness. Listen, we don't need that here. We have enough of that out there. The world has enough of that out there. 
God is not waiting on you to get it together. He's not concerned about how many of the big problems in your life you have solved. God's joy in you does not come from a future version of yourself that is more polished. God is not waiting on you to measure up to the super Christians around you. Amen? His joy comes when we collapse in his arms and a heart of broken repentance. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, and it leaves the 99. Church family, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And still you give yourself away, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. I need this one this morning. No lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for these two parables, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. We pray that you would minister to that to our souls now, the, your pursuit, the pursuit of us at great cost to yourself. You have come after us to love us, to pursue us so that we might repent and so that heaven might rejoice. I pray that we would be filled this morning, not with a sense of a frowning God or a God piling shame upon us for what we have done, but a repented who with open arms says, collapse onto me with a heart of broken repentance. May that be in our hearts this morning. May you fill us with that vision of you and who you are. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.